1989, I arrived in Chicago for the first time on a road to discovering my new home. 30 years later, I'm leaving Chicago for the desert. I'm Don Hall. Welcome to Peculiar Journeys. I said it gonna set my soul, gonna set my soul on fire. Got a whole lot of money that's ready to burn, so get those stakes up higher. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. They're all living the devil may care. And I'm just a devil with love to spare, so viva Las Vegas. Welcome back to Peculiar Journeys, uh, Viva Las Vegas. This is uh, episode 63, Cracking the Vegas Live Lit Scene. Um, Before I move on, I just want to uh, thank and introduce a new Patreon subscriber, one of my VIP patrons, Sarinda Moore. She has joined at the $5 uh, a month limit, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and, uh, thank you so very much. Uh, she's been listening to the podcast and I, uh, surrender. Thank you. Uh, you rock. Um, and hopefully, uh, that will encourage others to do the same, but I really appreciate it. You hear it at the end of the podcast. Your, uh, your dollars is always, are always appreciated, uh, in the pursuit of storytelling through this podcast. All right. So uh, last we heard, we know that I now have a casino job, but we're going to get into something a little different, a little deviating, deviation from uh, where we were. So now we're going to talk about the live lit scene in Las Vegas. Upon arriving at the barren shores of the Mojave Desert with no job in sight at the time and only hope to drive me, I decided to scope out the live lit scene here. I met with David Figler, recommended to me by the owner of the Bunkhouse Saloon, Ryan Party, as the storytelling guy to know in town. He had quite the reputation, and I booked Bughouse for a launch in Vegas at the Bunk Bughouse at the Bunkhouse, and finding those connections were kind of essential to make some sort of inroads to the existing scene. Go to other live lit events, meet those people, find out what the scene looked like so that I could figure out how Littered Ape could fit in. Well, David Figler agreed to meet me at a coffee shop downtown on one Wednesday morning. So I drove out there, still unsure of where I was going, and parked my Prius a couple of blocks away. Unfortunately, I didn't know there was a parking lot, and so I walked around the block, smoked a pipe, and there he was, sitting in the coffee shop, um, sort of like, a, I guess I would say, a, a, an attractive Bob Balaban type. If you, if you know who Bob Balaban is. And he was kind, and he was helpful. Uh, he, we talked a little bit about uh, things to know about Las Vegas. He was very good about, like, let me tell you about Las Vegas in general. And one of the things that he said was one of the best parts of Las Vegas was leaving Las Vegas, not in a Nick Cage, let's get drunk and die kind of sense, but in, in the sense that going that there are within two to three miles drive on any in any direction around Las Vegas, there are amazing places to see, and he recommended a number of them. Um, now, a few things about the live set, live lit scene that he said first uh, that the one that existed was really tiny in comparison to the glut of storytelling and poetry in Chicago. Uh, he suggested that there were maybe 500 people in all of the 2.5 million people who lived in Las Vegas who were actually a part of what he would call a live lit scene. They didn't. They don't really call it a live lit scene. And most were affi- were affiliated with the Black Mountain Institute, 
which is a nonprofit housed at UNLV and host of the Believer Fest. A new bookstore was opening at the Lucy, the offsite offices of BML, run by the guy who did all the illustrations of the Believer magazine called The Writer's Block. Figler had run a show for a number of years successfully, but now was an attorney with the city. He was also a frequent cultural contributor to KNPR, the Vegas public radio station. His show, The Tell, was very, very popular, but it definitely had the model of adding Las Vegas you know, neon to the concept of live lit that we have in Chicago. It was not just here's a microphone and here are st- storytellers or poets and, you know, this is this is the event. It was bands and drink specials and party al- elements and lots of dazzle camouflage. But apparently it was very popular at the day. He got tired of it and decided to put it away. So that was David. Then Himmel had put me in touch with a guy named Jarrett Keene, a writer and editor in town as well as a successful author. Um, we met, he, Jarrett, uh, met Mike Burson, Dana and I, at an open mic in downtown at a place called Ninja Karaoke. And we arrived at the sign-up time. It's, on, uh, it's just north of the downtown area. Dana had some poems to do and I had a few stories to tell, but the line was so long we were the very last two to sign up out of 30-odd performers. Guess what? We, we didn't do our, our stuff. We, didn't, we left before we got to that point. Now, let me explain something. If you're not familiar with Las Vegas that I've discovered is that uh, there are two elements, really, um, when it comes to culture and arts. Actually, I'd say there are three elements that are sort of like the cultural high points. You've got, obviously, the Strip the Las Vegas Boulevard Strip, and that is obviously, that's the culture you associate with Las Vegas. Lots of neon, Gordon Ramsay restaurants, Guy Fieri restaurants, um, everything's super expensive. It's all party. Um, That is the Strip. Then you have sort of UNLV and that campus and that area, and that is obviously the college area, and there are, they have on-site, they have poetry readings, and they have book readings and lectures by authors and that kind of thing, so you've got that kind of thing going on. And then you have downtown. Now, downtown is uh, just, I want to say it's just south of Fremont Street, and Fremont Street was the origin of, where that's where the first Las Vegas Strip was, and that has been refurbished to the Fremont Street experience, and it's definitely a celebration of old Vegas with a lot of the new Vegas kind of uh, elements to it. It reminds me, Fremont Street reminds me of Navy Pier. It's got that kind of uh, vibe, but with a lot more casinos, um, a lot more street performers. One of the things that's neat about Fremont Street is they actually have uh, painted circles all throughout the strip of uh, Fremont Street where you can book a spot, and that's where the buskers hang out. That's where the people dressed as centaurs or sexy women dressed up uh, like they're from, I don't know, outer space, all that kind of stuff. Trumpet players, saxophone players, uh, guys dressed up like transformers, uh, dudes that make little dolls out of corn husks, all that kind of stuff is going on in those little spots along Fremont Street. But then there's downtown. Now, downtown, sort of the apex, the north apex is the arts district area, and and it's this huge arts complex that reminds me of uh, the Flatiron Building in Chicago. Uh, on Milwaukee. 
Um, it's got lots of studios for artists, that kind of thing. They have some stuff going on there. There are rooms to do events. Um, and every first Friday, they have a huge thing with like 50 uh, food trucks. And there's theaters around there. And they set up tents. Well, then you go a little south of there, and it's Main Street. Now, Main Street is sort of where you and I would go. They are the artists. They can't afford a tent in the big arts district thing, commerce-wise. So they set up tables along that Main Street strip, and they sell poetry, and they do performance art, and there are a couple of really cool indie bars and coffee shops, um, and that is downtown. Ninja Karaoke is just to the west of sort of the arts building. That gives you kind of a sense of where things are going on. So at one point at Ninja Karaoke, Dana walked through the tiny crowd of about 35 people and passed out flyers I'd made to promote Bug House. These were the people I was looking for. They were young. They were urban. We had uh, a variety of colors represented. It was not sort of the, the very white experience that Vegas has to offer most of the time. Um, and it was kind of exciting. Young. I ran into a young black dude who had been introduced in, as just coming in from Chicago before he got up and did some really subpar rap. And so, of course, I introduced myself. We talked for a few minutes about his journey to Vegas. It mostly had to do with losing an apartment in Chicago, coming out here to live with a friend. And I gave him my card, but I, I never heard back from him. The vibe for this particular open mic was very DYI, very loose. Um, they started like an hour late and it featured uh, several really awful amateur poets, several awful rap artists, some some bizarre vocalists that were not very good. And one older guy who got up, and I'm obviously probably in his 60s or 70s, who got up and just sang this beautiful song set to you know a, a canned background. And at one point, I walked over to him and I said, that, you have a beautiful voice. He goes, I was lip syncing, which begged a lot of questions that I didn't ask at the time. First of all, why would you go to an open mic to lip sync with a microphone so close to your mouth that you couldn't see his mouth move? And why? There you go. Um... It was raw. The whole thing, raw, sloppy, uh, but it was apparent that the small crowd was there to socialize, perform for one another, and drink $2 PBRs. This was definitely not Jarrett's scene, but we drank beers and talked about UNLV and KNPR's need for an events guy, as well as how hard it was to generate interest in this specific cultural movement in a town known for its neon rather than its culture. He related the story of uh, 
uh, Black Mountain Institute bringing the moth to Las Vegas, a main stage show, one of the big moth shows, and that they could only fill half the 500-seat auditorium in which they performed, which is not our experience in Chicago. A few days later, Keen invited us to a pre-opening book reading at the Writer's Block, the thing by the BMI and the Believer's Fest. It, it really could not have been more different than our experience at Ninja Karaoke. And, and by the way, we'll take some questions and stuff later, so we can we can do more with, with that if you want uh, afterward. So I'm going to introduce Jared Kane now, uh, and I'm going to preface it with uh, uh, I think an accurate thing. My memory is so bad. I think I've been in this town a long time, working in newspapers and so forth. And Jared and I used to work together at one of those newspapers. And if I remember correctly, not if I'm right. Uh, I fired you. <laughs> it, was the, it was the most pleasant termination because he was like, yeah, I probably deserved it. That's, that's what I remember. Am I right? Is that basically true? She's like, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, all's well that ends well. Uh, Derek's doing what he, he should be doing now, anyway. Um, so let me read a little bit about his biography and then let him read his, his speech. Uh, Jared Keene is an assistant professor of residence in the English department at UNLV, where he teaches creative writing and ancient and media and uh, teaches creative writing and ancient and medieval literature. His fiction, essays, and verse have appeared in literary journals such as New England Review, uh, Carolina Quarterly, and the Southeast Review. He has written books and edited acclaimed short fiction anthologies, including Las Vegas Noir, which is great, and Dead Neon: Tales of the Near Future of Las Vegas, which is also great. Uh, for more than a decade, Keene was a contributing music editor at Vegas 7 magazine and a book critic, critic for Tucson Weekly, both of which followed, I think, uh, for me. Uh, before becoming a college instructor, he wrote helicopter maintenance manuals and casino employee newsletters. The uh, casino employee <laughs> You'll see, I think, the casino employee newsletter kind of plays into the story. Uh, Jared, are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Scott Dickensheets, the co-editor of the Desert Companion, which is the public radio magazine in town. We talked about Literate Ape a bit. We talked about Bug House. Uh, he seemed very interested and suggested I email him the info and he'd see if he could get it listed in the KNPR website or on the Desert Companion website. Um, I met a couple of poets that were university poets who seemed very interested in Literate Ape, really cool. Jarrett invited us then later to a BMI event at the UNLV campus uh, with Amanda Fortini, who had written uh, a, a really nice, I think it was New York Times article about like the real Las Vegas, and 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 you know that that seems to be a sort of a preoccupation with the sort of university crowd is writing about sort of writing Vegas out of the hole of reputation that it has as sort of like this tourist mecca to say that there are two and a half million people here that actually live here and actually work here, and that they have 
things to offer and they have a culture they would like to share. And so we went and saw that and it was really excellent. I saw David there and I started to get the sense is exactly what he said is that there's about 500 people in this, this lit scene they've got and they all come to the same thing. So I started to recognize people immediately from some of these just very few uh, experiences that I had. And uh, I don't know if they noticed me, but I certainly noticed them. Um, Dana and I also went to another open mic uh, that we left before performing, although at the top of it, Dana ditched for a little while, and I ended up getting pulled into sort of a hippie-esque drum circle thing where we did, uh, you know, um, kind of chants. It's not really my bag, but I was, you know, when you're in Rome, do as the Romans do. Um, and then, of course, the same sort of bad poets and bad rap artists and bad musicians and then and then and then in april live from the bunkhouse saloon in downtown las vegas nevada this is bunkhouse <laughs> came about because David Kimmel, the co-editor of Literate Ape in Chicago, we realized that we've hit a place in our history as a country where we don't know how to argue anymore. We've, we've gotten so focused, and, and we can blame Facebook, but it's, you gotta remember, Facebook is us. So it's not the tool's fault, it's our fucking fault. And we've lost, I mean, the, the, the point is, I could go out on the strip, or I could go on Fremont Street, and I could just mention to any random stranger that Star Wars was really made for 12-year-old boys. And within minutes, someone's going to take a knife to my fucking throat, because this is where we at. We, we, where we are at when it comes to arguing. We don't know how to do it anymore. And so, Bug House... It comes from, in 1911, in Washington Square Park in Chicago, Illinois, radicals, visionaries, anarchists would get up on soap boxes, literal boxes that were sold with soap, and they would stand in the park and they would argue the issues of the day. And it was called, because they were all so outside of the mainstream, it was called Bughouse Square, Bughouse being a pejorative for a mental hospital. Well, in 1950, somewhere in 1952, Studs Terkel, if you don't know who Studs Terkel is, you should look him up, but he was a, a venerated Chicago journalist. He decided that we were kind of in a place in the country where we, were not, we, weren't, we weren't really able to argue about real issues anymore, so he reinvigorated Bughouse Square in Washington Square Park. Well, in 2019, we're back to that same fucking place where we can't argue and so David and I decided, well, we don't want to go to Buckhouse Square and get a, a soapbox, so let's do a show. Because that's what you do in 2019. You do a show, you know? And so that's what Buckhouse right. is about. Every single world culture definitely has an opinion about tattoos. And I'm pretty sure now, within American culture, 
They are a trend imbued with style that is here to stay for two very good Veterans. reasons. Charlie Manson. He's the only people I saw with tattoos when I was 10 years old. Murderers, basically. And back then, we were afraid of people with tattoos, and rightly fucking so. They'd all done hard time. Tattoos were uncommon in middle America. My parents didn't have tattoos. My, my friend's parents didn't have tattoos. Our grandparents didn't have tattoos, unless they got them in Germany. And by the late 80s, though, when I was a teen, musicians were steeped in Imagine it. if today you're at your job and your boss comes up to you and says, we need to have a talk. Yeah, boss, what's, what, what's going on? Well, it turns out that um, when you were a sophomore in high school, yeah, you said some really bad things. So we gotta let you go. A girl that lived down the road from us, she was in my eighth grade class out in the tiny country school in the middle of where are we again, Kansas? At first we were friends, but like so many adolescent things, I said something to her, or she said something to me, or something was misinterpreted. I honestly can't remember how we became enemies. But enemies we became. More duck face selfies on Instagram in a single day than there are in the entirety of two Zoolander movies. <laughs> like, I'm so sexy on Instagram every day. And I think about, like, whatever I forgot already. I think about, um, like, people just want attention. They'll post anything on social media. A friend of mine posted the other day that he, he, you know, that he went to Fatburger for the first time in a long time, and he sharted a little bit <laughs> after he had his Fatburger, but didn't shit his pants. Hashtag winning. This was like on Facebook. See this? This is all photos of me. There's nobody else in there but me. Okay? If you want to see them here, pass them around. I know how many are in there. There's five. Please. <laughs> don't, don't lose them. I need them back, right? That's where it all starts. Right in your face. At least you don't have to see the person now, right? So no, I don't think it makes us more narcissists. No, I think we already were since the day we were born because we we're taking photos while we're in the womb. So the shit was already started since day one. Now, I'm so in love with myself because I want to be, okay? And I said to myself, man, this has got to be on social media. Like, I have to spread myself around. I actually wasn't gonna come tonight, you know? But I was like, no, 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 they gotta see me. They gotta see this face. I gotta make an appearance, right? I love the outside so much that I said, I need to see how fine I am on the inside. You understand what I'm saying? So, I landed up getting an x-ray of my boob. <laughs> now that's a fine looking boob. Following our first Vegas bug house, I got a call from Scott Dickensheets over at De Desert Companion. They wanted to send out a reporter to interview me about the show for the magazine. A young guy named Jacob Lasky and I met in a coffee shop on Main Street. And we talked for about 90 minutes about the show, about storytelling, about the lack of Vegas boom, why that was. I mean, we talked, for, it seemed forever. And at some point it occurred to me that this was a lot of words for sort of a blurb. And he then called me and said uh, that, that he needed to get in contact with uh, Himmel. 
and maybe one of the per- per people that had performed at the first Bug House, so I put him in touch with Burson. And they arranged, uh, Desert Companion arranged for a photographer to meet with me, and we met at the Bunk House, and he took this picture up against a, a outside, up against a, like an old Ford that's sort of like an art installation in the back uh, area of the bunkhouse that sort of makes me look like either Ford Tough or like I'm one of the guys from Pawn, Stuffs, Pawn Shop Wars. So on June 1st, um, we had done two bug houses at that point. The magazine hit, and the title of the feature, it was a feature, not a blurb. The title reminded me of an article about WNP Theater going to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe in 1995. Now, here's the setup for that. In 95, we had decided, WNP, we decided that we were going to take the Armageddon Radio Hour to the, the Scotland, the Edinburgh, Scotland Festival Fringe. And we also, because so many of us were in comedy sports at the time, comedy sports said, hey, why don't you take a comedy sports show too? Well, it turned out that the, for some reason, the, the sort of like in the water in Chicago, there were like 13 sketch groups and plays and comedians that from Chicago were going to go to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. And the Scotsman, the local paper in Edinburgh, decided that that was newsworthy. So they sent a reporter to Chicago to interview uh, a lot of these groups, not all, um, and write an article sort of in preparation. You know, it's like it's newsworthy. And so he came out, and we, he and I back and forth a couple of times trying to figure out when we could meet. And I was obviously, WNP was obviously low on the priority list. They wanted to talk to Second City, talk to people from I.O. You know, they got the big the big boys out there. And, and from what I understand, those, uh, Kelly Leonard took them out, took them out to dinner, you know, showed them Chicago and, like, expensive restaurants and this kind of thing. And the I.O. guys met at I.O. and all this kind of stuff. And he and I kept going back and forth. And finally, he said, listen, I, I, don't, I, I really would like to talk to you, but I'm leaving on Monday, and I don't know if I have any time. And I said, well... We have uh, every week um, in my backyard pretty much a good portion of the WNP theater company. We come over here and I just grill. I'll, I'll grill, you know, I grill burgers and brats and fish and whatever anybody wants to eat. We just grill and drink beer and hang out in the backyard. I said, you know, if you want to come, that'd be great. He was like, what's a brat? I said, a bratwurst, a brat? A brat. He'd never had a fucking brat. So I said, get over here and I'll feed you a fucking brat. You're never going to leave. So he shows up that Sunday, and I'm, you know, I'm wearing shorts, I'm wearing a ball cap, I'm smoking a cigar, I'm grilling meat, I'm doing my thing, and we talk a little bit about a little bit before the interview, and I, I feed him a brat, and he's through, he's like he ate, I think he ended up eating three brats that day. He was just he never had anything like he liked it so much. He was just thrilled with the brat. But anyway, then we sat down and we talked. We had a conversation, and. Uh, that was fun. Well, the article that came out in the Scotsman then later um, was a whole like three-page spread um, all about the Chicago groups, and of course, most of the spread was about Second City and I.O., which was fine. But the thing that and this did, I know because I was told that people were pissed about this. In the middle of the second thing, the entire second half of the second page was a sidebar, and the sidebar was entitled "Here He." Cu- here he comes, in your face, the ugly American, with a picture of me smoking a cigar with a ball cap on. And the, like the, 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 the tenor of the article at the beginning was, 
You know, he's wearing a ball cap, he's smoking a cigar, he's grilling meat. The only thing that would make him more the stereotypical ugly American is if he had a gun in one pocket and a, a porn magazine in the other. And that I thought that was a pretty clever way to open it. And, but then basically the article went on to talk about that the author, you know, the writer actually thought I was very smart, that I had a lot of a theatrical experience, that I'd done a lot of Shakespeare, this kind of stuff. And that so that that his perception was looks when it comes to Americans in Chicago were deceiving. And so it was a good, it was a really nice article. Well, the article that came out in the Desert Companion some 30 years later was called In Your Real Non-Virtual Face. And I'm going to read it to you because why the hell not? You're not going to read it. I'll link to it in the, in the show notes, but might as well read it. It says, Bug House offers live topical debates for fun and hopefully enlightenment. In a time when public discourse usually takes place through social media shouting matches, a new local show is instead encouraging people to engage each other on stage before a live audience. Bug House, an interactive show that blends comic, dialectic discussion with storytelling elements, debuted in April at the Bunkhouse Saloon, where it now runs once a month. Co-founders Don Hall and David Kimmel conceived the show in Chicago in 2017 under the banner of their digital magazine, Literate Ape, after concluding that people too often base their arguments on emotion rather than logic. Quote, We kind of hit on the idea that nobody knows how to argue anymore. Everybody wants just to scream at each other, Hall says. There's no persuasion going on. The show also derives inspiration from Chicago's Washington Square Park, better known as Bughouse Square, a popular free speech zone for more than a century. Hall, a longtime figure in Chicago's live literature scene and former host of the city's Moth Story Slam, brought Bughouse with him when he moved to Las Vegas earlier this year. Himmel maintains the show in Chicago. Bughouse features three pairs of contestants, typically local writers, comedians, and musicians. Each pair is assigned a topic from one of three categories, which Hall describes as political, cultural, and dumb, with one taking the pro, the other the con, regardless of whether they agree with the argument they've been given. Contestants have three weeks to research and refine their arguments. On stage, they have seven minutes to make their case. Hall chooses a judge from the audience to decide who has the best argument for each round and walks away with a free drink or cash. Every 75-minute show is recorded and uploaded to the magazine's website as a podcast. It's more than just arguing, Hall says. Performers also interweave their personal stories into their presentations. What I discovered in Chicago is what I want for Las Vegas citizens, Hall says, that their stories matter. It's not like the town is short on entertainment, says Himmel, who used to live and work in Vegas as an oldies radio DJ and freelance writer, but here's some entertainment that requires some participation and requires us to think. For the debut, participants argued over whether political correctness is regressive or progressive, whether tattoos are trash or art, and whether social media has made people more narcissistic. Michael Burson, a friend of Hall's and Las Vegas resident of five years, argued that politically correct speech is regressive, although he personally disagrees with that view. I think a show like this makes you think, Burson, 49, says. It makes you question things you never thought about. Besides encouraging people to be more open-minded, Hall believes that assigning participants opposing viewpoints can help them strengthen their own beliefs. If you can argue the point of your enemy, then you can argue your point better. For those looking to participate in the show, Hall only requires that participants be able to write out their arguments, engage with the audience, and at least show a willingness to try. Ultimately, the thing about Bug House is if you're willing to do it, or at least you think you can do it, you probably can. 
Now, at this recording, we're now logged with three more Vegas bug houses and plenty more to come. Things have slowed down a little bit here on the live lit scene, mainly because now I'm working as a casino manager, which takes up a lot of my time and makes me very tired, but it's a shit ton of fun. Now, that said, plans are in place to start a storytelling open mic soon, and eventually, Literate Ape will be known as a part of a nascent scene that hopefully grows. Um, I came with the idea that we were just going to kind of barnstorm the place. Time is a little funny that way, and getting a job and getting kind of uh, set up has been a little bit more daunting than I probably envisioned, Um, but I am a bit of a Pollyanna. Um, In fact, at the casino, one of my nicknames is Buff Ned Flanders, um, probably because of the hair and the glasses um, and my completely rose-colored glasses perspective on life. With that, we're going to end this episode. Take a chance. uh, Check out Desert Companion. Um, check out the podcast of Bug House. We've got lots of stuff going on. We're meeting a lot of really amazing people, some great performers. That's been a lot of fun. And we'll continue to do, once we get the the storytelling uh, open mic up, I'll see if I can do that as a podcast. I don't know if that'll work, but we'll do what we can. Um, Just so you know, episode 64 is going to be the beginning of my casino stories. Because I got to tell you, getting a job as a casino manager and not telling stories about the fucking oddballs I meet and the crazy situations I have, I got to tell you, I hope you you tune in because I think it's really going to be worth it. Thanks for listening. If I wind up broke, well, I'll always remember that I had a swing in time. I'm gonna give it Peculiar Journeys is a storytelling podcast. For previous seasons, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or online at donhall.vegas slash podcast. To support Peculiar Journeys, please review the show on Apple Podcasts, share it with your friends or on social media, or go to patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys and become a VIP patron by tossing me a few bucks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>